Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to a budget special of FT Politics, the Financial Times' podcast on British politics. I'm Sebastian Payne, and today we are discussing Philip Hammond's autumn budget, the chance that had a difficult hand to play with gross forecast slashed, productivity levels continuing to decline, and demands for more money on the health service unmet. But fiscal fills seem to do it pretty well. I'm delighted to be joined by Rupert Harrison, Portfolio Manager at BlackRock and a former Chief of Staff to George Osborne, plus Torsten Bell, who's Head of the Resolution Foundation and previously Director of Policy for the Labour Party. Thank you both for joining. So to begin, there were two standout announcements in Mr Hammond's budget. The first were growth forecasts, which have been revised down, reaching as low as 1.3% in 2019. The second was a gamble to tackle some of the problems in the UK's housing market, where stamp duty abolished first-time buyers. Torsten Bell, just to begin, what did you make of the budget overall here? The expectations were pretty low, this was meant to be boring and dry, and it was relatively dry, but with this rabbit out of the hat you so often get. Well, I mean, the big picture of the budget is that the Office for Budget Responsibility has punched the Chancellor in the face with very, very bigly downgrades to their economic and their public finance forecasts. And the Chancellor has chosen to largely take that on the chin and actually to choose to borrow a bit extra. Some of that is, as you say, for a big package of measures on housing. And the focus on housing is very welcome. And Rupert Afferson, what did you make of the budget? I think the budget will probably be a success in the sense that we'll probably be talking about something else in a couple of days' time. And I think that that was probably the key test after, you know, the previous budget unravelled. He had to backtrack on his main tax announcement. There's a lot of pressure on the government in the run-up to Brexit negotiations. And as Torsten says, he delivered some bad news on the economy, which we all have to live with. But he probably did enough in terms of a little bit more money here for public services, a, a, a very small rabbit at the end in terms of uh, stamp duty for first time buyers but I can't see anything in there that's probably going to trip him up. So let's talk about talk about these growth forecasts Torsten because the OBR has a great history of getting growth forecasts wrong here and you might say well they've got it wrong in their forecast before are these ones going to be any more accurate how much should we believe them? Um, well, all forecasts are wrong that's kind of the nature of the beast what the OBR has decided is that they don't want to be as wrong in terms of slow productivity growth as they have been over the previous seven years. That's basically the big picture they've decided. It's the same decision the Bank of England took about a month ago, and they're both now thinking that saying that the UK economy, the speed limit at which the UK economy can sustainably grow, is much lower than it was pre-crisis, and that that's here to stay, even if it does pick up slightly from the current non-existent levels. Yes, I mean, there's only so long you can carry on forecasting that productivity growth is going to bounce back before you have to acknowledge, well, maybe it won't. Uh, Now, let's all hope that they their timing is exactly wrong and that finally when they have downgraded their forecast maybe now we will start to see some productivity growth but uh, you know they 
it's a big downgrade. They are still forecasting an acceleration in productivity. So let's be clear, they, they've basically split the difference between what they thought previously and what's been happening for the last seven years. So they're still expecting some improvement, just half as much as they were before. And the impact is big. I mean, that that is going to cost us in tax receipts £20 billion by the end of the period, and incomes will be lower and all of the associated problems that come from lower productivity growth. So it's a big deal. And, you know, Philip Hammond has responded by setting out more measures from government on improving productivity but this all takes time and uh, yeah, with very long lags. It is worth saying, actually, that although a lot of the focus on budget day and the run into budget is on the public finances, and those figures are very bad, it's actually £26 billion the productivity hit has taken off the poor old Chancellor. From the, but, the, um, but actually, in some ways, it's worse for the family finances. The, the forecast detail shows family finances being about incomes being £500 a year lower than they were expected to back in March. Just, and then there was a budget, there was a Brexit downgrade before that. So, you know, this is not good news for the family finances, even if you think Phil's done better than expected. One interesting thing about this productivity forecast is that it now looks very like the, and indeed the, the growth forecast looks very like the Treasury's long-term forecast before the Brexit referendum. And I think one of the interesting things is how much of this productivity downgrade is just long-term slower productivity growth and how much is due to Brexit. That was the question I was going to come on to, that a lot of people will look at this budget, and particularly with the £3 billion the Chancellor said is going to be put aside for Brexit and say how much of this is just sort of the health of the UK economy and how much of this has been the impact of the vote to leave the EU, which obviously didn't have an immediate shock to the state of the economy, but seemed to have a sort of more subtle and longer tail effect, Torsten. Well, I mean, the productivity downgrade in this fiscal event is is bigger than the OBR's view, initial view about the effect of Brexit. And I think it probably is fair to say that although the outcome here looks quite similar to what the Treasury forecast before the Brexit referendum is that the, the project fear risk of a outcome. Actually, I think what's going on for the OBR is they're looking back over what's actually happened to the UK economy well before the Brexit referendum, which is a productivity growth is basically zero since the financial crisis, and are saying with or without Brexit, that's pretty rubbish and it looks like it's going to continue. Now, let's look at the state of the public finances overall, Rupert, because um, obviously debt continues to climb and Philip Hammond said that it will reach a peak this year, which is a nice way of simply saying that we've still got a huge deficit and it's going to take us quite a few years to actually close it there. Um, do you still think that that target of, you know, by the middle of the next parliament of getting the deficit closed is achievable because it's been pushed back so many times as you saw during your time in the Treasury? Indeed, the big picture is we had a deficit of more than 10% of our GDP. That was, I, I think, and uh, I still think was a, a threat to economic stability in the UK, something that had to be dealt with. It's now down at 3%, below 3% of GDP. And I think it says something that Philip Hammond can receive a downgrade to his public finance forecast. He can respond to that with a, a modest fiscal loosening, spending even more money. And yet still the deficit forecasts don't look too bad. So we've got a public sector deficit that is forecast to carry on falling as a share of GDP from about 2% down to 1% of GDP. That's quite low by historical standards. So in the short term, you know, there's no crisis. And you know he had that wriggle room. I think the issue is, as you say, we've got high level of debt. We've got a large banking system. We're very dependent on capital inflows. At some point, we are going to have to get serious about getting that level of debt down. Now is probably not the time to double down on that, given the Brexit uncertainty. But I think it leaves that question unanswered. I mean, when we look at what's going on with public finances, what we've really decided to do as a nation is learn to live with 80% debt to GDP in a way that we learned to live with 40% debt to GDP before the crisis. And if you look at the numbers, there's no serious attempt to get below that 80% figure in the medium term. So the, the world in which we were looking to have 
sharply downward pointing debt lines in our forecast has basically passed. And as Rupert says, that's passed because of Brexit. And it's also just so politically difficult that it seems that chancellors just don't seem to, you know, for whatever reasons, to make those huge cuts that would be required. Do you think that matters at all to have debt at that level, Torsten? Well, I mean, the, the background to what you say is obviously they don't want to do that in a world where they have a tiny majority and it's very hard to pass tax rises. And if you wanted to make inroads into debt, my view is any real chancellor in this position now would probably be looking to do that via tax rises rather than spending cuts. And in a world you can't legislate for that, you learn to live with high debt and you pray you don't get a big recession coming along and whacking that debt level up by 10%. I think that's the precise issue is that this budget and this out this path of the public finances is fine as long as conditions are relatively benign, which they may well be, you know, after a big financial crisis, you can have a very long, slow recovery that grinds on for years and years. And let's hope that is the case. Um, But the big test is if you do get a slowdown, and if public finances deteriorate, and and people are going to need to see how we're going to respond to that, how we're going to stop debt getting out of control, when you've got a parliament with essentially no majority of those difficult decisions, that would be the big test for the UK. Let's hope we don't face it before we have a chance to uh, change the parliamentary arithmetic. So let's talk about the big retail off from this, which is all about housing. And I think most Conservatives now acknowledge they've got any chance of winning the next general election. They have to do something about the UK's housing market. And with the average first time buy now at 32 and the average first time house price in London pushing well above 400,000, this is clearly a big issue for them. And so Philip Hammond really seemed to throw the kitchen sink at this issue and hoping that some of the stuff would actually stick and begin to ease up the pressure on the market here. Torsten, what did you make of all the measures, with the most notable one being the abolition of stamp duty for first-time properties um, under 300,000, and if you're above 300,000, the first 300,000? So the overall focus on housing is spot on, and any politician of any party right now should be focusing on that, and the breadth of the focus covering lots of different elements of supply and with future promises are coming back to look at compulsory purchase orders and other areas is very welcome. The slight downside is for all the breadth of that rhetoric, all the money in practice is being spent on this stamp duty cut. That's by far the largest cost measure, and that is in the end a measure affecting demand that will push up house prices, the OBR says, by an average of 0.3%, and actually no budget line is spending that much money on extra supply. And if we look in the weeds of the uh, budget document, you'll see that the spending on what's called the Housing Infrastructure Fund, which is a good thing to put extra cash into, is in italics. And it is in italics because it's beyond this spending review coming out of non-existent budgets. The, um, and so none of that's coming in right now. And that's the big spend. That's two billion quid that's coming for extra housing supply. And it's not coming now. No, I agree that housing is clearly a big political issue and house prices are a big political issue. You know, I think that the reality is that high house prices are largely a function of very low interest rates. It's the same for other asset prices, the stock market equivalently. Um, and those low, low interest rates may or may not be here to stay. They probably are here to stay for some time. Anything that any politician does to increase housing supply in the short term is not really going to impact those high house prices anytime soon. So I think the politics in this is all about being seen to act to to take on vested interests, make a change that, that may make a small difference at the margin. But we shouldn't expect that the outcome is going to be substantially lower house prices for you know uh, young people trying to buy a home anytime soon. The, the measures themselves are are good and sensible. They're, they're, they're mainly incremental. I think you know if we are going to get in get serious about this, we need to start thinking about building a significant number of new towns, garden cities, getting into compulsory purchase, getting into further planning reform. He's nibbling at the edges of those big issues, and I'm sure there'll be more to come. 
And one of the important things to remember about housing as a political issue is everyone talks about it as if it's a retail giveaway to a few young people. But for the reasons Rupert sets out, you're never going to be able to give enough to make it into a proper retail offer. What it's really about in politics is saying, I get that this is a huge challenge facing the country and we as politicians are up to trying to address that. And older people care about that as much as young people. Uh, and that is why he needs to focus on supply and not pretending he's got £10.50 for people today. Absolutely. And in, in terms of the very, very short term, you know, the, the top of the bulletins at the moment is stamp duty cut for first-time buyers. I think Philip Hammond and, and his cabinet colleagues were pretty pretty happy with that. If that remains the headlines by tomorrow morning, then that will be seen as a short-term success. So this was the problem with Philip Hammond's budget earlier in the year, Rupert, that when you looked at it, there were no real clear retail offers and it all unravelled over the changes to national insurance contributions. Um, it's obviously maybe a little bit early to say this now, but generally, based on what Conservative MPs are saying, how it was received in the chamber, there doesn't need to be anything too dangerous that could come and backfire, but I'm guessing we'll have to wait and see over the next few days. Yeah, I'm a little nervous to make a confident <laughs> pronouncement now, you know, two hours after he sat down, that there's nothing in there that's going to unravel. But I have to say, you know, in March, when he set out the national insurance tax rise, you just knew immediately this was going to be a massive problem. There was nothing today that, that like that. He's really played it very cautious on the anti-avoidance measures, on small tax rises for, for example, uh, polluting diesel cars. Looks to me like all of these should be fine, uh, but those may be famous last words. And Torsten, one of the other striking announcements was, was on universal credit. So this is the big welfare reform programme. It's been under a lot of criticism from Labour MPs who feel that it's unfair and it's the six-week wait period where before you make your claim you actually get the money has been seen as pretty pernicious. Anyway, there was £1.5 billion in the budget towards universal credit to reduce that by a week and do a whole host of measures to try and basically make it fairer. I don't think Philip Hammond really had much choice because there was he had a Tory rebellion on his hands and with Christmas coming the Conservatives don't want headlines about universal credit backfiring do you think he's done enough here to make universal credit work better? No, he's done enough in the short term to remove the political pressure, which, as you say, has been on this six-week wait issue. For new people coming on and claiming universal credit for the first time, he's reduced that by a week, and he's also allowed people to claim bigger advances. And actually, I think that people haven't noticed, he's made a good move, which is to make it smoother. You transition from housing benefit to the housing element of universal credit. That is a very good idea because it avoids pointless uh, arrears that we don't need to have. That said, he is still pressing ahead with a thing that is going to cause universal credit problems in the near term, which is a three billion pounds worth of cuts alongside a benefit freeze that mean the takeaway from young working families in particular is very significant across the rest of this parliament that might have been okay but as i said before you've got a very big living standard squeeze coming from these revised forecasts for productivity those two combined is a pretty tough uh, pill to swallow for low-income families I'm, I'm not sure i agree i think he probably has done enough um because uh you know it the problem was he was going to lose votes in the House of Commons. He was losing his own colleagues on the Conservative benches. And I think these tweaks to make it work better in terms of implementation will satisfy that. I think that removing the generosity, reducing the generosity of the benefit and the benefit freeze, these are very controversial issues that affect people very deeply. But I can't see the government losing votes on the House of Commons on that. And I think the great thing is if you can remove the impediments on implementation, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact this is still a transformative reform. And the evidence so far is it's getting people into work and is really a good thing that still has cross-party support, which is all too rare these days. And very briefly, just to rattle through the last final few measures, Torsten, on healthcare, there was some extra money put forward to the NHS, but not quite as much as Simon Stevens, who runs NHS England, was looking for. No, I mean, on the NHS, I think really what the Chancellor has done is said, come back to me and tell me how much cash you need next year 
for the pay increase as he's lifting the public sector pay cap of 1%. And in the end, that is a huge bill for the NHS. A lot of the NHS spending is staff spending. He said, here's a bit of cash next year to deal with some other pressures and come and see me later when you've worked out how much extra you're going to pay nurses. And curiously, nothing on social care. You know, we heard in June's election that this was a generation-defining issue that was going to need really big reforms and there's not really a single mention of it. Yeah, so I think the issue on is which generation was it defining for? So it turns out, not this one. I think the a, cons- a generation of Conservative politicians of Philip Hammond and Theresa May's age have probably decided that uh, they're not going back near that in the near future and that is obviously a big problem and the policy measures they set out obviously in the Conservative manifesto were a political turkey but they're right to address the issue it's a huge problem and they're right probably to say that working age households can't be asked to pay for that and so we do need to look towards older generations and homeowners in particular. And Rupert we also had freezes on fuel and alcohol tax as well. Yeah, we had you know some goodies. He was sprinkling around the goodies, a little bit more spending on health. Alcohol is always a good, uh, you know, punchline in the House of Commons. Get you, gets you some good headlines. You know, fuel duty. You know, this has now been a very, very expensive policy delivered by uh, you know chancellors over many years now. Yeah, I think we just got to the point with fuel duty where you you know the limits of tolerance for taxation. I think it's a very interesting question about whether any chancellor now can ever deliver an inflation increase in fuel duty. And if they can't, then that is a pretty big structural hole in the public finances, you know, even with oil prices now much lower than they were several years ago. But I think that's one we'll be hearing about again. And we also had a big focus on science and technology, Torsten. I think this is, again, Philip Hammond trying to look forward beyond Brexit, that obviously he's got this eorish reputation as being very down on Brexit and not being optimistic about Britain's chances after leaving the EU. But this focus on investing in, you know, the Oxford, Cambridge, Milton Keynes corridor, lots of folks on mathematics and computer science are areas where clearly they'd love to see growth because it's somewhere that they think uh, Britain can have a competitive advantage regardless of what kind of deal we get with the EU, which obviously overhangs everything. And there was lots of good rhetoric on that. And the kind of simple message of the first five minutes of the Chancellor's speech was the future good, the past bad. The, um, and, you know, most people would agree with that in some form or other. I mean, really, if you look at the detail of what they're saying, the increase in spending on R&D is for the middle of the next decade heading towards 2030. It is a lot of money and that money will have to come from somewhere. And really, it means bigger cuts to other uh, departmental public service budgets. The, um, but those are all problems for probably two or three Chancellor's time. So there we have it. And to finalise, I want to ask Rupert and Torsten to mark this budget to give us out of 10 what you think it is. Rupert? Um, in terms of memorability, probably, uh, you know, three out of 10. In terms of doing what it needed to, nine out of 10. Torsten? We've allowed two, then I'll go for it. It's one out of 10 in terms of how awful the substance is, both for the Chancellor and for Britain, in terms of the grimness of the forecast. But he's dealt with it probably about as well as he could, particularly on the politics. So let's give him eight for that. Well, thumbs up for Philip Hammond then. That's it for our budget special episode of FT Politics. Many thanks to Rupert and Torsten for joining us on a busy day. We'll be back on Friday for our regular weekly discussion. FT Politics was produced by Madison Derbyshire and Martin Starber. Until next time, thanks for listening. 
You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. 